0: Immediately after the bomb went off under Don Bowles' Datsun, chaos ruled, at the scene, the Phoenix Police Department, the Arizona Republic, and the Bulls home. Those early hours, an entire city scrambled to come to grips with the savage attack, and who might be involved. Here, Don Bowles' widow, Rosalie, talking about the moments and hours following the bombing. I got a phone call.
1: And they said uh, that Don had been hurt. I said, how bad is he hurt? And uh, they said, well, the firemen are working on him and they're taking him to St. Joseph's Hospital and we'll be right out to get you. And 20 minutes later, I couldn't wait anymore. And I I did drive myself down there, but it was uh, several minutes before anyone talked to me to tell me exactly what was going on. And uh, I probably didn't know that there was even a bomb involved for a good half hour, 45 minutes.
2: Did you talk to Don?
1: I didn't talk to Don until many, many hours later. I didn't even get to see him. He was um, in surgery for a long, long time.
2: What did he say when you talked to him? He couldn't
0: talk. The rumor that a reporter had been involved in a vehicle bombing spread quickly. Jana Bombersbach, a young reporter for the Arizona Republic at the time, witnessed the day of the bombing firsthand. Jana was making a long distance phone call from the city desk at the Republic and recounts the events of the day as follows.
3: That whole that whole day is so seared. You know, there are things in your life that you just Never forget. I remember just sitting there and I was at the newsroom because I you couldn't make long distance phone calls from your desk. You had to use this desk, city desk. And I was calling the EPA in San Francisco, which is why I was at this sitting at the city desk. And when the call came, in, I just said, excuse me, something just happened here. I'll talk to you later, just hung up. And I just sat there and kind of froze. And it was like I didn't have any idea what was going on, you know, um, and I, I just uh, early, I, you know, who was our rock, you know, he was like our guy. I've never seen more panic on his face in my entire life. Since, and since then, never have again. But it was like, no one could believe this, that something would happen. I mean, there was an unwritten rule in the mafia, for instance, that you don't go after cops or journalists, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about not wanting problems, right? So leave those guys alone, you know? Well, here was a not only a journalist, but the most prominent investigative journalist in the state of Arizona. In the midst of legislative hearings, Breaking up an incredible empire from a company that had already been tied to the mob in other states—I mean, my God—it was like a scenario out of you know Law and Order or something, you know. Um, so I sat there and I and watched it, and and you know where's Sitter? Where's Sitter? Because they thought it was Al Sitter because he thought that Don was at the legislature, and then Al comes wandering into the newsroom. Oh my God, who is it? Who is it? And finally, somebody called and they said it's Bowles. And they said, what in the hell is he working on? What's he working on? And he's screaming. He's screaming. You know, his voice is the voice I hear that day, um, going very, very upset, obviously, right? Um, And then finding out how bad things were. We assumed immediately that the guy was dead.
0: Bowles was taken to St. Joseph's Hospital, where he was in surgery for five hours and had his right leg amputated above the knee. He eventually would lose both legs and an arm due to an infection. Though in critical condition, Bowles remained conscious after his surgery. Two police officers showed Bowles a picture of John Harvey Adamson and asked him if he was the guy. Unable to speak, he nodded his head yes.
1: Phoenix police know Adamson well. He's a man with a criminal record and police say he has underworld associates. He's a gambler and breeder of racing dogs, friendly with Ned Warren, an Arizona real estate magnate who has been under investigation here for
0: land fraud. As the investigation into the attack began, Adamson and prominent Phoenix attorney Neil Roberts were two names that came up right away as suspects to be looked at and followed. As Jana Bombersbach explains.
3: Adamson's name came up very early, and, and that was going on. Neil Roberts' name came up really early. I mean, I think our guys, and it was Paul Dean and um, Charles Kelly, were the two, two of the main guys from the Republic. I'm sure there were others, but those are the two that come most to my mind, um, who were over, I know, looking at, because, because Neil's office was at, on Virginia, the corner of Virginia and, and Third Avenue, and they were out there stalking out his place that very afternoon. So his name came up right away, and so did Adams's name came up right away. Um, and so the people were looking all over the place for everybody, and they were piecing together. And our guys, I mean, between Kelly and and Paul Dean, they were getting they were getting just gobs of information. I mean, they were going to every source they had, and they were getting there was all
0: kinds of great stuff. Adamson was known to the Phoenix PD intelligence unit as a mid-level hood with ties to notorious Chicago outfit hitman, Carl Vereave. Don Devereaux gives us some background on John Adamson.
4: From what I've seen of John, that he was probably a sociopath. He was he was a guy who didn't have a, a strong moral center <laughs> in any respect. He had been at one time a student at ASU. He was a very bright kid, uh, but had a penchant for looking for easy easy ways to make a living. And, and uh, which included drug dealing, fencing, putting uh, blocks on people's tires who were parked in the wrong place. Um, all kinds of ways he could, you know, make, make a buck without having to have a 9-to-5 job. And, and was notoriously involved in all kinds of stuff like that around town. Uh, you know, illegal activity of initially rather petty varieties. Um, when Carl Reavy came out here with his brother Lou from Chicago, both of them hit men out of Chicago, uh, and, and migrated to, uh, to the Phoenix in the late 60s, Carl became the more active of the, of the two of them here. And the cops picked up on his identity, as did Don Bowles, fairly quickly. Don mentions him early on in that piece he wrote about the menace within kind of right. stuff. Uh, the cops were aware of Carl's presence and who he was, and he became subject to a lot of traffic stops uh, just to see you know, what he was doing. And he got tired of that. And so fairly early on, he recruited Adamson. I don't know how they met, but he recruited Adamson to become his driver. Uh, He graduated from being just a driver to being an accomplice in some criminal activity to later becoming like a business agent of Carl's. Um, He got more and more involved with what Carl was doing. Not to the point that I could ever put John directly involved in ever killing anybody personally, Mm But if you wanted somebody killed and went to John, John would get you to Carl. Um, he became a, a means to get to Varivi to talk a business deal. John was kind of the, uh, the person, the screener, if you the will. The gatekeeper for Carl. Yeah, almost. he had to make sure yeah. that you were real, not the cops undercover or some goddamn mm-hmm. thing, and, and, and uh, you know, get it done, uh, carefully. Uh, but he became the gatekeeper, the, the person for Carl to go through, uh, and was involved in that role in, several homicides that the police department subsequently
0: learned about. In a suspicious move, immediately after the bombing, Roberts hastily made arrangements to get Adamson and his wife on a private plane to Lake Havasu, where they could hide out. Roberts had also begun trying to raise $25,000 for Adamson's legal defense fund. Not exactly the actions of innocent men.
4: Uh, Neil took uh, John ultimately and his wife to the executive airport at the Phoenix airport and uh, got him on a private plane uh, to have a suit, put him up in a motel for a night and then brought him back the following day. And it was basically just get him out of the way long enough to figure out what they
0: were gonna do. Within 24 hours, Adamson had returned to Phoenix and his old haunts, namely the Ivanhoe Lounge where Adamson, Roberts, and several other interesting characters were known to frequent. For a couple of guys who knew they were under surveillance, the men had no problem talking loudly about what had just happened and connecting another man for whoever was listening in on their conversation. That man was Max Dunlap, a local contractor who was an associate of both Roberts and Adamson as well as local liquor magnate Kemper Marley. Another of the drinking buddies present that Thursday afternoon was lawyer Mickey Clifton. He was so horrified by what he heard at the Ivanhoe that within hours, he'd notified the Phoenix PD of the conversation. With Bulls still clinging to life and no murder to pin on Adamson yet, Phoenix PD continued surveillance of Adamson and Roberts, as well as their new suspect, Max Dunlap.
4: Well, you know, the, when Adamson's name came up, which came up immediately, um, the guys at the Republic uh, would have had no trouble in their contacts with Phoenix cops uh, if they didn't already know who Adamson was, getting an earful pretty quickly as to who he was. And they would have known of his relationship with Neil through that. Arrangement, and so very quickly, uh, both Neil and John would have come to the attention of the of the Republic reporters. Uh, I n- I don't know what that means by you know staking them out or anything, right? But, um, they were certainly looking at them in, in mm-hmm. some capacity. Um, the 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 real movement away from from Neil well, since Neil came up almost quickly, um, and Neil made no effort to really hide that. Uh, as I think uh, we may have discussed before the Friday morning Bowles was bound on a Wednesday Adamson went to Havasu on a Wednesday afternoon Adamson was back Thursday afternoon uh, and out drinking with Mickey Clifton and other people that evening Friday morning he was at the Ivanhoe with Neil and they knew they were being surrounded at the bar basically by undercover cops they were being followed around and they had a, a loud verbal discussion uh, about what was going on, and, and Neil told John, "You better tell your fat friend up on Bethany home to pay you the money he owes you." And they began pointing at Dunlap, mm-hmm. and knowing that the police were listening, and the cops basically, uh, if not that weekend, by Monday, certainly had uh, Max under surveillance as well. Neil was already under surveillance, as was John, and I mean like around the clock. Mm-hmm. They had cops staking out, you know, police cars sitting on their houses and offices and stuff. Yeah. And keeping track of where they were going. The surveillance of Max Dunlap began probably by the bombing was on the second. Friday was the fourth when they were talking about it at the bar. This sixth, probably the Monday of the seventh.
0: They had started tailing Adam. If of not, Supervisor Adams and Ma- uh-huh. would
4: have been under surveillance by the seventh, uh-huh. if not over the weekend. So by the seventh, there would have been a, a cop watching his house all the damn time, and and arranging to follow him around. I'll be a second car. And on the 12th of June, there was a money drop, supposedly at Max's house, where Neil Roberts sent a sack of cash with somebody mm-hmm. the to basically take to Tom Foster's office to help with John Adamson's legal defense. And Tom wasn't there, and John was, and all that happened.
0: For unknown reasons, however, outside of Adamson, Phoenix PD didn't seem interested in following the lead their victim had offered with his final words regarding the mafia or Emprise. As a matter of fact, Emprise and the Funks had been officially notified five days after the bombing that they were not suspects in the case. Meanwhile, the Organized Crime Task Force, perhaps the most knowledgeable group of cops in Phoenix on the players involved, was being completely shut out of the investigation.
4: The intelligence unit included a, a group of people, not everybody, but a group of people that had real problems with the direction the state was going in this case. Uh did not think it was the right direction at all. And so what ultimately happened was an uh, uh, instruction came down from Chief Wetzel, lawyer Wetzel's office, that further communications between the intelligence unit and the homicide unit be conducted through the chain of command, through their respective commanders, but not directly by members of those units. Really? This was a way to get a grip on that information and to keep keep the negative information, if you will, from flowing to the homicide unit. Uh, what happened as a solution to that, temporarily, uh, knowing full well that, what he was doing, uh, Jack Weaver, who was a sergeant in the intelligence unit, arranged to become a registered confidential informant, and he, in effect, provided them with a lot of information suggesting that they should take a better look. There were some very experienced guys in the, in the intelligence unit, uh, Andy Watsick among them, uh, Weaver among them, who knew an awful lot about John Adamson, Carl Verivi, the mob, all these people. And uh, the minute Adamson's name came up, to them it suggested Carl Varivi and the mob because John Adamson was a driver for Carl Verivi, with whom he'd been involved in several other contract killings uh, in recent years in the Phoenix area.
0: During those 11 days that Don Bowles fought for his life, Jana spent time at St. Joseph's Hospital attempting to comfort Rosalie Bowles.
3: We went over to, to, the, to the hospital and um, Bill Shover was there, who was the communication director at the, at the Republic. And, and we hugged and he said, oh my God, that's just so horrible. And they've got Rosalie here. And I said, I just can't stand this. And she heard my voice and she said, Jana, 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 come back. They won't let anybody see anybody come back here. And so she called me and so they let me in and I went back and she's in this room and it's dark and she, oh my God. Oh my God. So awful, and she's just danced down the hall somewhere. You know, says they won't let me see him. They won't let me see him. And I'm thinking, oh my God, that's probably a merciful of them. You yeah. know, you just knew he had to be a More apart. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and she said, well, how could this happen? How could this happen? And I said, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. You know, and, and I didn't, you know, may, maybe at that moment I should have said, what was he working on? Or I should have been, you know, but I never did. I was th- just there as a friend to console. I wasn't there as a reporter to report or anything. And I just remember sitting there with her for a while and just holding her hand and, and just letting her cry and, uh, and just feeling, you know, and I cried. And I mean, everybody was just so totally, totally upset. Um, and then day after day, one amputation after the next. I mean, 11 days that man lived. 11 days. Yeah. You know, I said at one point in one of the stories I wrote, I said it was almost like he finally got our attention and he wasn't going to let go. He knew he was not, not going to win this battle, but he was going to make it last as long as he could so that everyone had to know.
0: The day that Bulls had finally succumbed to his injuries, John Adamson was arrested and charged with murder. Something else occurred that would forever change the course of this investigation. Phoenix PD brought Neil Roberts in for questioning and immediately gave him immunity for providing a theory on who was involved in the murder of Don Bowles. So let's let that sink in. Immunity. In one of the highest profile murder cases, in the country, for a theory? Neil, Neil in, in this,
4: in this uh, plea deal he, he gave, hypothesized that uh, because Bowles had written a nasty article some months earlier about Kemper, nasty in that he you know, was critical of Kemper and his background, um, that maybe Kemper had taken it upon himself to uh, enlist Dunlap's helper to suggest to Dunlap, or maybe Dunlap on his own as a favor to Kemper, decided to do something to Don Bowles. This was offered by Neil as as just a a maybe-this-is-what-happened-frontier-justice-kind-of-explanation.
0: This is is how the Marley theory was born. Phoenix PD became laser-focused on it from that point forward. Dom Bowles' final words, be damned. They also had something else. John Adamson was looking at the gas chamber for first-degree murder, unless he cooperated with the investigation and gave up the men who hired him at the same time the story of the bombing and Bowles's death was spreading nationally like a wildfire
2: don Bowles is a 47 year old investigative reporter for the arizona republic he's been working on a series about the mafia today as he attempted to start his car a bomb went off Don Bowles, an investigative reporter for the Phoenix, for the Arizona Star in Phoenix, is lying in a hospital in critical condition today. A bomb went off in his car yesterday as he sat in it outside a hotel where he was to have met a man who had some information for him. Bowles died yesterday from injuries he suffered while investigating the mafia. His newspaper has made a front page promise not to forget Don Bowles. Under the storytelling of his death, an editorial is bannered in red. It says, that death shall not go unavenged. It concludes, we could not rest if Don Bowles had died, utterly in vain. Don Bowles, the Phoenix reporter who was murdered while trying to expose crooked land sales, was buried today.
0: Walter Cronkite was reporting nightly on Bowles' condition and the investigation. President Ford was inquiring about the situation and sending condolences to the Bowles family. The Arizona Republic, along with the Phoenix Gazette, offered a reward of $25,000 cash for any information leading to a solution to the bombing. And 60 Minutes produced something rotten in Arizona, a disturbing look at the corruption inside Phoenix.
2: What was it that Bowles did? What was it that Don Bowles knew? What story was Bowles onto that made it necessary for someone to have him eliminated? And what is it about Arizona that makes fraud, corruption, and murder almost commonplace?
0: Meanwhile, in a show of solidarity, a group of journalists came together to continue the investigative work of organized crime in Arizona that Don Bowles was working on. The Investigative Reporters and Editors Organization also known as the IRE, use this to continue and honor Bowles' work on a larger scale. They wanted to show whoever was responsible for this heinous act, that killing a reporter would not kill a story.
2: Don Bowles will be difficult to replace in this newsroom, but if his death was meant to scare off other reporters, it has backfired. And now a lot of his
1: colleagues say they are determined to pick up where he left off.
0: Legendary Newsday editor Bob Green oversaw the project as a group of 39 journalists made their way to Phoenix from all over the country, operating independently from 26 different news organizations. The list of journalists featured several future household names, such as Lowell Bergman of 60 Minutes fame. The goal of the project was for these journalists to come together and uncover corrupt relationships between politics. Business and organized crime within the state of Arizona. Their investigation aimed to reveal and depict these deep rooted connections in a series of news items that would eventually be published across the country, as well as serve as a message about the need for journalistic unity and the ramifications of killing. A reporter.
2: When a Phoenix newsman, Don Bowles, was murdered last summer while investigating a land fraud scandal, reporters from across the country went to that state to conduct their own investigation of scandals in Arizona. They're now telling their story, and Sharon Lovejoy has details.
1: Among the many findings to be revealed by the investigative team during the next several weeks are white-collar swindlers bribing their way to freedom. In nationwide radio broadcasts, and in more than 20 newspapers across the country, the Arizona story began to unfold this morning. A story of crime in that state, put together by a team of 39 journalists from 26 different news organizations. It was the murder of a reporter that sparked this experiment in teen journalism. Last June, Arizona Republic reporter Don Bowles was lured to a Phoenix hotel on the promise of information linking Arizona politicians and others to land fraud schemes. The informant never appeared, and when Bowles returned to start his car, a bomb went off. Twelve days later, Don Bowles was dead. Arizona then became the target of a group known as Investigative Reporters and Editors Incorporated, a group founded after the Watergate scandal and to which Bowles himself had belonged. The team promised to carry on the work of Don Bowles, leaving his murder for the police to solve. The reporters were led by an editor from Long Island's Newsday, Robert Green, who described some of the team's findings to CBS News reporter Sam Chu Lin.
2: We have been able to demonstrate uh, that Arizona is facing a massive problem with organized crime. We have been able to document who those people are and what they are doing. Uh, that uh, the state
4: is not geared as it stands to handle this problem alone.
1: Apparently, it didn't take the reporters team long to conclude what Don Bowles had written for years, that Arizona has a serious problem with white collar crime. The team's report today says Arizona's prosecutorial system has been, quote, marked until recently by incompetence fuzzy or non-existent law, and brazen bribe-taking, unquote. In addition, the team calls Arizona, which borders on Mexico, quote, the single most concentrated corridor of illegal narcotics entry into the United States, unquote. Whatever new leads are produced by the Arizona series will become apparent as the stories unfold over the next 23 days. There have been threats of lawsuits, and many of the newspapers running the series are nervous. Bowl's own paper, The Arizona Republic, plans to carry only part of the series, and that after extensive editing. Tucson's Arizona Daily Star says it will run the whole series, but again, only after editing. In the end, will very much change in Arizona as a result of this six-month investigative reporting effort? Robert Green answers that question with one of his own. When you tell the people what is going on, then should something happen like it does in the fairy tale books, that immediately there's an indictment, immediately there's a conviction. Everybody says you're right. I'm guilty. I send me to jail. Uh, the problem with investigative reporting is it doesn't happen that way.
0: Don Devereaux, one of our lead investigators and in looking back at this case, was also part of what was called the Arizona Project, as he explains.
4: I had something to do with. Uh, getting IRE involved in the Arizona Project. Uh, and um, Bob Green, who ultimately ran the Arizona Project from Newsday, came to see me in Santa Fe. And I came over to Phoenix and did a little legwork that summer to get some ducks in a row for the project to arrive. And, uh, and I played a, a curious kind of role in the Arizona Project as a result. Not so much as a journalist at that point, uh, but as a, a fundraiser. Uh, I had, as an organizer, I had a lot of progressive foundations that knew me, knew my work, respected me, that I could tap into for grant money and so I did a lot of fundraising from progressive foundations for the Arizona project and helped bankroll a great deal of what happened here and I also uh, provided the, uh, the ideas uh, for a couple of the, of the uh, articles that we did in the, of the 23 series I was familiar with what had happened at Arrowhead Ranch with undocumented workers there and the mistreatment of them. And uh, I encouraged them to tackle that as a topic. And I encouraged the uh, Arizona Project people to do one article on New Mexico, uh, the neighboring state. And I contributed a lot of files and contacts and stuff for that. And I provided the tour guide for the uh, Arizona for the Arizona Project effort on Arrowhead Ranch. Uh, I went through some old farm labor people I knew and Got one of those guys to uh, sneak people in and out at night to talk to workers out there. Um, but I didn't do any writing for the Arizona project. I, I basically did fundraising and, and and idea promoting and contact arranging.
0: The findings were published in a variety of publications. However, several newspapers, such as the New York Times and the Washington Post, avoided the series due to libel concerns surrounding the work. Speaking to a CBS reporter. Bob Green stated that the findings reveal that Arizona is confronting a tremendous problem in organized crime, and that the 23-part series revealed names and stories related to corruption, land fraud, and organized crime in the state. At the same time, the state's case, AKA the Marley theory, was taking shape. Adamson had finally agreed to cooperate copying out to a plea deal that would see him serve 20 years instead of getting the death penalty. He corroborated Robert's theory on the killing, stating that Max Dunlap had hired him to kill Dom Bowles as payback for a negative article about his friend and mentor Kemper Marley. He also cited a local Chandler, Arizona plumber named Jimmy Robeson as his accomplice in the bombing, and soon both men had joined Adamson in state custody. Richard Ruelis breaks it down. Adamson tells police, um, the, the,
2: how the crime happened. That Max Dunlap, who was a business associate of a liquor baron in town called Kemper Marley, The Max Dunlap came to him and said, could you take care of Don Bowles? Could you figure out a way to kill this guy and make it public and loud? And Adamson said, sure, and started getting to work on that. Um, So police start talking to Max Dunlap. Uh, The Republic reporters start talking to Max Dunlap. As the Republic reporters are reaching out to Max Dunlap, he mentions to them casually how Kemper Marley is a great friend of his. It's like, well, they they didn't quite, the the reporters didn't quite know why he was bringing up Kemper Marley, but that ends up becoming one of the theories of the case is that Kemper Marley was the one who wanted Don Bowles gone and whether he specifically ordered it or just kind of said, you know, who will rid me of this troublesome reporter? And Max Dunlap said, I'll I'll just do it. You know, I'll look, I'll do this and it'll look good
0: to my boss. Max Dunlap and Jimmy Robeson would be charged with first degree murder for the killing of Don Bowles. The star witness in each man's trial would be none other than John Adamson. While local businessman Kemper Marley was implicated, there would be no charges against him. His only punishment being the damage done to his reputation by the allegations. Dunlap and Robeson were quickly convicted and sentenced to death. The question is, did the state get it right? And if they didn't, who were the real players? And what forces behind the scenes caused this miscarriage of justice?